where lust for a whole life and nothing but less makes people jump out of a comfortable pond into an unknown ocean. Welcome to that journey between the East and the West. Who says Rolling Stones don't gather moss? Hello everyone, I am Meenu Gupta, your host for the day, and I'm delighted to have you join me every week as amazing people share their incredible and inspiring life stories of straddling continents. Thank you. Dear listeners, can you imagine a different world order, a different level of citizenship, a different way of governance? Our guest for today can. It is my deep pleasure to host Andreas Bumel, who is the founder and executive director of Democracy Without Borders. He's known worldwide as a leading expert and advocate for a world parliament. The campaign he has been leading for a parliamentary assembly at the UN has been supported by more than 1,500 parliamentarians from over 100 countries. Andreas, thank you for joining me today. Can you share a bit of your journey with us? I believe that you were born in South Africa and now live in Germany. Do share the journey of the physical shift as well as how this very interesting organization came into being. Thank you, Minu, for inviting me to participate in this interesting podcast. Like you say, I was born in Cape Town in South Africa. My parents were German and moved to South Africa for business reasons. So that's why I was lucky to be born there. But my family moved back when I was at the age of six um, to Western Germany at the time. Germany was still separated. But nonetheless, having been born in South Africa for sure deeply influenced me, even as a kid, and influenced my worldview because I didn't necessarily feel home at home in Germany. But also, I wasn't at home in South Africa. So I think this um, gave me, you know, put me on a path of exploring who am I and where am I at home. And I ended up thinking that the whole planet, after all, is everybody's home and my own as well. So there also you had this, you didn't feel so much at home and here till you figured your way around. Yes, I mean, I didn't identify like like I'm I'm a German, and especially you know German history obviously is very difficult with the crimes committed by the Nazi regime, the worst crimes possible, the genocide, um, the Holocaust. Um, that made it, of course, very difficult to identify such a country, and that's why yes, I um, at some point also consciously thought about it, right. And South Africa, I very much identified with the idea of a rainbow nation, you know, that developed uh, while apartheid was overcome. But of course, apartheid too, um, another of the worst crimes possible, you know, made me think about how did this come about? What is the history here? And again, then, you know, made me think that inclusive and universal global citizenship is actually the path forward. And also one of certainly one of the solutions in my mind are preventing such crimes occurring again. Um, so, yeah, this is the background. Another important element for sure 
was at the time the separation of Germany in East and West, which I mentioned already, which came along and I realized that early on in my life with the potential of a nuclear, you know, Armageddon, missiles East and West were pointing at each other and where I lived in the Rhine-Main area in Germany, that would have been a primary nuclear target. So within 7 to 15 minutes, everything could have been literally melted away. And for sure, this prospect also had a deep impact on me. Tell me a little more, because then at what stage were you figuring out your place in the world? How old were you then? Yeah, that's difficult to say. I still remember, you know, I'm born in 1976, and I still remember me glued to television in 1987 when, um, at the time, Gorbachev and Reagan met in Reykjavik in Iceland for um, disarmament talks, and later in 1988 as well. So my political consciousness developed early on. So I was like 11 or 12. I had, I actually had nightmares of nuclear blasts at the time also. So that, um, yeah, to a degree, I would say it, it was a traumatizing time, you know, being aware as a very young person that, you know, these nuclear arms were pointing at you and pointing at everybody else you care about. So, yes, that was the time. And then, of course, in 1989, 1990, and 1991, first of all, that was extremely hopeful, a glimmer of hope when apartheid was overcome. I mean, nobody knew how it would play out. It could have become a bloody struggle, and a much more bloody struggle than it was anyway. So when Nelson Mandela was released from prison after a quarter century, that was even for me as a as a young person, a big moment, just as it was a big moment when the Berlin Wall fell. You know, Eastern and Western Germany were separated by a literal wall and a death strip. You couldn't pass. Uh, and there was a peaceful revolution because Gorbachev said he will not protect the Soviet sphere of influence again, you know, like the USSR did in the 60s with tanks and violence. So... The Eastern German police state crumbled, and, and that was that was for me very moving, and even at an early age. Well, and I mean, the rest is, is really history. But that's how my thinking developed, and that gave me hope that perhaps it's really possible for the world eventually to unite. I mean, we know that the you know history played out differently after 1991, but that's a different story. But why did that? Uh, it was around that time that nuclear disarmament talks were on, right? That is the reason you must have had nightmares. Well, yes. I mean, the nightmares came from the clear um, awareness of the existence of these nuclear arms, which were on high readiness alert. And I mean, by the way, they still are. Um, so that's how, how that. But that was in, in the mid 80s. That I understand. And. Uh, then in which year did this organization come into being, Democracy Without Borders? 
Yes, I mean, if we follow this this path in my development, first thing I did when I developed that idea was to get into touch with the World Federalist Movement, that which is an organization that was established in 1947 already, which was supported at the time, you know, after the Second World War by people like Albert Einstein, but also Nehru and others. And that organization still exists. I got involved with them and they are the primary umbrella um, organization in the world that is promoting um, world unification on a democratic and federal basis. So that was the first thing I did um, in the 90s. I got involved in, in this group. And Democracy Without Borders, which I also co-founded with a group of colleagues, is a much more recent, I think compared to that, a much more recent endeavor. Um, it goes back to 2017. It has a predecessor organization that goes back to 2003, which had a focus on making the UN more democratic following a world federalist strategy. But we discovered, um, you know, this predecessor organization launched and managed the campaign for UN Parliamentary Assembly, which you mentioned at the beginning. Um, but we discovered that the goal of a parliamentary assembly at the UN and global democracy with the vision of a world parliament um, doesn't function unless democracy thrives and is defended and strengthened at the nation state level as well. Right, And that is really, I believe, what makes Democracy Without Borders special, um, because it is an organization that is promoting a right to democracy for everyone, from the local to the global scale. So we don't stop at the level of the nation state, but we are saying each global citizen needs to have a say in global affairs just as well. And uh, tell me more about your book. It goes beyond the East-West divide and calls for a world parliament, a world parliament, governance and democracy in the 21st century. Yes, this book um, was written by me and uh, my colleague, Jo Leinen, because literally there was no, no literature in existence covering the vision and history of the idea of a world parliament. So we filled this gap. The book has three main parts. The first is about the very long history of, of the idea, starting with a cosmopolitan thought, not only in ancient Greece, but also in ancient India. And it follows the idea um, in the course of history to the French Revolution up until to the present. The second part looks into um, some issues, uh, thematic basis, and tries to illustrate the contemporary relevance of a world parliament. And the third part, which became a bit short because we were short of time, um, explains how it could be implemented and designed. I'm just now working on a second edition that will be expanded and updated. So you mentioned cosmopolitan thought right at the beginning there in uh, Greece and in India. Can you expand a little more for, for me to understand? Yes, for sure. I mean, usually if you look at um, mainstream books uh, about cosmopolitanism, you will read that the origins of cosmopolitan thought are to be found in ancient Greece. When Diogenes of Sinope said, uh, that when he was asked where does he come from, that he is a citizen of nowhere of the world. 
Um, and this is one approach, but it's it's not sufficient to say this because um, obviously um, cosmopolitan thought and the thought of the unity of mankind, for instance, can also be found in Sanskrit literature. There is a saying in the Upanishads, um, the whole world is our family. So um, this just shows that the, this idea has been around since ancient times in different uh, regions, not only Greece, and I find that extremely important. Um, so especially in the second edition of the book, we are elaborating about on, on this much more, the fact that it is a universal thought actually that can be found in all, all world regions, you know, the unity of humankind. Very, very nice. The Sanskrit um, sentence that you meant is Vasudev Kutambakam, which means uh, the world is one family. And um, that, I believe, has been used by Prime Minister Modi at the G20, which recently happened a few weeks back, um, that the world is one. So, and I, I really um, like that thought because it makes sense. And from that thought, of course, comes attitude and, and action and so on. Now, I have been interacting with people across the globe, and the one consensus which has been universally proven is the different value systems in the East and the West, which sometimes lead to conflict for different reasons. Now, how would such a parliament that you mentioned, a world parliament, how would that function across geographies and cultures, taking into account varied value systems and ways of thinking, emoting and working? Well, I mean, first of all, I believe the, the concept of global unity is a necessity that stems from the fact that today, as opposed to ancient times, human activity has a, um, a catastrophic impact on life on Earth and undermines humanity's own survival potentially. So managing global commons better and in an effective way is a requirement. So a global parliament serves the purpose basically to come up with effective mechanisms, regulations, laws that democratically reflect the will of, of the people, and, and that is all people. So while it is true that we can find different um, values to a degree across the world, um, I still think that a world parliament can be and, and must be based on universal principles that everybody shares, one of which is, you know, the need of survival. And otherwise, I'm not so sure whether these supposed differences are so large. We do have already in existence, you know, many international intergovernmental organizations for that managing international collaboration like the United Nations. So nobody questions their need based on the thought that there were different values. So universal values, for instance, that for sure do exist as well, is equality of human beings, right? Which I think would have to be reflected in a world parliament and equal, and which then means that every person on the planet needs to enjoy equal rights. At this time, rights are intermediated 
through nation states. This is not right, in my opinion. So um, I think that it is doubtful whether at a fundamental level there are really very different value systems. I agree. Basically, I agree with the whole premise. And definitely, the need of the hour is more than ever before to consider the commonalities more than the differences. Do you consider yourself a global citizen? I wish I, w- I was a global citizen because um, we would have to investigate the concept of citizenship more. And I'm saying I wish I was a global citizen because citizenship, in a way, you know, requires the existence of a common polity. You know, I'm a citizen of, of what polity? And since there is no global polity, it is difficult to declare that global citizen, you are a global citizen, right? Because there is no such thing, legally speaking, politically speaking. So having said that, ideally speaking, yes, I do think I am a global citizen and you are a global citizen as well. Everybody is supposed to be a global citizen by birth, by nature. And that is a good thing because um, if you look at separate nation states, one of the big issues has always been who is in and who is out, you know, who is a citizen of a particular country. And that has also been weaponized in a a way, politicized, right? Including very recently in, in certain countries, you know, that would strip off people of their citizenship, which would um, imply that they would be stripped of basic human rights and they would become citizen stateless people. So I think that citizenship must go beyond the nation state. And that is the point. As opposed to nation states, there is no difficulty in defining who is a global citizen, right? There is no question of in or out because the, the entire planet would be the polity that brings together the demos, the demos that is the collective of all global citizens, which is all human beings. That was a very explanatory uh, response. And thank you for saying that, and a very different one from what I have received from many people, and a more concrete one. And I again, I really like the, the thought. So when we are saying global polity that you mentioned, what would that look like? Yes, a global polity, after all, let's be, let's be frank and straightforward. A global polity means a global state, yes, and actual state structures that can deliver, deliver on, for instance, managing global commons better, but that can also deliver on fulfillment of human rights or the sustainable development goals and their continuation after 2030, right? We have to think about the details, and one of which is the world parliament. So a global polity, a global state would have to have a proper institutions. And I think this is, in my mind, this is rather easy. I know this, for many, this is a very complicated issue, but for me it's rather easy because I believe we can simply draw on the existing experience that we have in over 190 countries over the course of history, right? And I think there are basic democratic principles that have been accepted everywhere, right? So I would also stress that those are 
today universal. Of course, there are autocratic governments who, for obvious self-interest reasons, they deny the existence of, of such universal democratic principles. And, but I challenge that. I, I think they exist. And what are those? And, you know, if we look at them more closely, we automatically, in my mind, come up with a basic architecture of global polity. And I can elaborate on that a bit more if you want. Yes, please. It's very important because it's a thought which otherwise remains superficial unless we understand what is behind that thought. Because what is also interesting, which will be my next question, would be so probably you can combine the two. As a person, as let's say I'm born today and I am a global citizen, as per what you say, how would I, sitting in Germany, for example, right now, vote for somebody in a world parliament sitting there somewhere, you know, in a cloud? So. Yes, I mean, global elections, that is, of course, um, huge, a huge symbolic um, event. And at some point in human history, I'm sure it will be an actual political event, maybe stretch over a week or two, where everybody on the planet can elect their global representatives. And I, I mean, maybe I'm naive, but to me, it's so obvious because in, in democracies, we, you know, people, they elect their local councillors, they elect their county representatives, they elect um, state representatives, national representatives. And why not do we also elect our global representatives, especially the global planetary representatives? Because so many issues in our global civilization can only be solved effectively at the global stage. So effectively, everybody on the planet is disenfranchised by the fact that um, government executives alone come together in intergovernmental negotiations and come up with more or less um, effective rules. But coming back to the global polity, so I think that some principles have emanated from the development of nation states everywhere. And one basic principle, I think, first of all, at a very fundamental level, that is constitutionalism, which means you have a hierarchy of law. And the basic law is set in the constitution, and it is not necessarily even um, at the discretion of anyone, you know, which includes fundamental human rights, which would be enshrined in a constitution. And in this constitution, and then in a global constitution, you would have a, you know, it would design the institutions in the three branches of government that have developed over time, which is the executive, the legislative, and the judicative branch. Right. And um, these three branches would have to be designed, you know, the institutions of these three branches would have to be designed in a way that there is proper checks and balances. Right. By lawmaking would be um, the responsibility, obviously, of the legislative branch implementing these laws would be the responsibility of the executive. And the judicial branch, on the other hand, would provide overall legal oversight. So this is the starting point, and then we can look at what kind of, you know, in detail, what kind of institutions um, are needed in, in these spheres. And another um, principle that I think is of major importance uh, in terms of a global polity, that is federalism. The, the concept of federalism isn't necessarily um, understood in the same way everywhere. So I would have to add that with federalism, what is meant here is a system 
that locates government responsibility across different levels, you know. So there are issues that are best dealt with at the local level. And then the upper levels don't need to mess up with this. So we would disperse government responsibility from the local to the global scale in the constitutional setup and locating powers at the lowest level possible, which is at the same time the principle of subsidiarity. So I think, you know, oftentimes people, they are afraid of the idea of a world state because they imagine it is centralized. Um, but this is, I don't know anyone who seriously would promote a centralized global world state, you know. So we are talking of essentially it functions because it would function because it would be decentralized. Okay, that logically makes sense. In this day and age, we still find countries going to war. The latest example is the outrageous act of Russia on Ukraine. Do you think that if the world parliament had been in place, the situation might have been different? And then how? Yes, absolutely. What we need is an effective system of collective security and complete and comprehensive disarmament. And the latter is a goal that the UN has been pursuing for many decades, but did not achieve. And this, this is a very complex, multidimensional problem. First of all, I believe that we have to look at the preconditions of a world parliament. A world parliament, which implies global elections and a global constitutional system, can only function in a universal way if actually democratization has moved forward in all major countries in the world. So um, automatically, you know, this means that the component parts of the global polity, the member states, if you want, they would have to have achieved a certain degree of democracy. Otherwise, a, a democratic world federation is not possible. It's not possible to have a democratic global polity while there are pockets of autocracy in existence, especially countries like Russia or China, which even, you know, possess nuclear arms. So, and, and that is why I immediately responded, of course, if the world parliament existed, uh, the situation would be different because it can only exist. I mean, it is, you know, that is the point. It is a precondition that the situation has already changed, right? So um, the problem is the system of collective security and ongoing um, democratization, which, which is needed in the first place for world parliament come into existence. And um, here I can only say that democratic forces and pro-democracy activists everywhere need to receive the, the strongest support possible and autocracies need to be contained as, as strongly as possible. The dilemma is, of course, that we are at a crucial point in global history where we, we humanity, we need to find immediate and um, effective solutions to problems like mitigating climate change, right? And on the one hand, we need to contain authoritarianism. On the other hand, in such areas, collaboration is needed. And I think that is one of the biggest dilemmas um, of our time, right? I get the point that the precondition is the whole world in should be in some kind of democratic state in the sense that all the pockets should be, to a certain level, democratic. Now, um, having said that, the existing condition is that 
we have Russia, we have Ukraine, we have Syria, we have people and their egos. So how would that be contained or who would do that? Which body is going to regulate? Because if there was a body strong enough, we would not in the t- this century be at war. <laughs> so it is hilarious. It is uh, a heinous act. So when I say hilarious, I mean it's in a very, very, in this state, it makes no sense. Yes, I mean, the thing is that, you know, based on the experience of the Second World War and the Holocaust at the time, there was a strong movement historically that was pushing for world government, including nuclear scientists. There's this movie on Robert Oppenheimer that's been quite popular these times, for instance, which mentions it. But the thing is that even then already, moves into that direction were impossible because of the Stalinist Soviet Union, you see? And, and then Mao's China, already at the time, they weren't, you know, collaboration at that basic level with the transfer of power to a new sovereign global body is, wasn't simply possible. And it is still not possible. So this is, this is really the basic problem that if there was to be political um, unification of humankind, it means that we first need to get rid of the autocratic dictatorships that exist. Um, and otherwise, I don't see really what solution we could come up with. Because also, even if there are agreements, you know, what are they worth? Look, Ukraine agreed to forfeit its nuclear weapons uh, when the Soviet Union broke up. And they got security guarantees um, for the sovereign, territorial sovereignty and integrity. And, and what was it worth? Nothing, after all. I mean, insofar as that with Russia now possessing nuclear arms, all of them, even a, a UN that had, let's say, as a scenario, that had a military component, the UN wouldn't be able to wage war against, against Russia, would it? Because that would open up the floodgates towards a nuclear third world war. So best we can do now is really to arm and help to arm Ukraine and help Ukraine to um, exercise its clear right to self-defense. So in the end, I believe the only solution that will bring us on a path towards a global polity is a global democratic revolution that will topple the autocratic regimes in in China and Russia and and elsewhere. And having said that, I mean, the thing is that even in democracies, we have real critical issues that need to be dealt with. Democratic governments themselves, in my experience, uh, are not um, necessarily interested in, in a global democracy. You know, there is a an inertia, an inbuilt institutional tendency of any national government to keep its its supposed national sovereignty. So, even if there was the you know, even if we were in a world where these autocracies had been toppled, the challenges still would be huge. True. Essentially, what I understand and um, what the need of the hour is to initiate or I think it's already been initiated to increase the global consciousness 
in all the citizens of the world. So every person like you mentioned. I read something interesting the other day, which made also a lot of sense. The addition of the global origin story into education curricula worldwide. I think David Christian was the author of, I think, a paper on that, on that subject. What is your take on that for a better understanding of the listeners? Right. You are, you are referring to this uh, relatively new approach of big history. And before I elaborate on that a bit, I, I want to um, agree that promoting planetary consciousness and the, the idea of, of global citizenship is, is a key towards moving beyond authoritarianism and towards a global polity, obviously. The, the, th the thing is here, again, that is part of the complexity that we do not have much time, actually, given the, the big challenges that humanity is faced with. I mentioned climate change, but also the topic of nuclear Armageddon is one we touched on a couple of times in, in this podcast already, but there are more, um, right? And I think that state fragility, food security, and let's not forget our, our issues, but let's not forget also COVID-19 and, and the pandemic, right? That was not handled well. Um, to say the least, and the next disease X is possibly just around the corner, and it could be much worse than, than COVID. So there is not much time, actually, to come up with um, a global policy that is actually able to deal with these issues. But then coming back, the big history approach is a wonderful one because it is trying to come up with a universal story of human evolution and actually the evolution of this planet and the universe from the Big Bang, you know, until a time when life will no longer be possible on Earth due to the sun's expansion. And later on, due to the fact that at some point the sun's energy will be gone, but that is in billions of years. So I think this, this perspective that spans billions of years, that, that does bring with it a certain degree of humbleness, you know. What are people fighting about on this small blue dot in a in a huge space of, of literally nothing? Right? What is it? What we are doing here? It's and, and this is I think a perspective that is very important. Um, it is of course a challenge perhaps, especially in terms of human socio-political um, evolution to really come up with a story that everybody would um, accept as being universal. So I think that the big history at this point has been focusing a lot on facts that can be proven, you know, which means um, that they've been concentrating a lot on Big Bang and the, you know, cosmological developments and once we come to the point of examining and describing human history, you know, starting 100,000 years ago, perhaps, it becomes tricky because um, it has to be acknowledged that, that everybody has a certain perspective. And it has also to be acknowledged that in, in these things, there is probably no ultimate truth that you can unpick. It's just not there. So in my mind, the solution is lies in 
a description that embraces, if needed, different perspectives at the same time. So if, if that can be achieved, I think Big History is a great contribution to developing uh, planetary consciousness. I totally, 100% agree, because uh, I'm assuming, I'm sure you are hobnobbing with people from different countries, and I'm assuming uh, generally all nations and all children of different nations, they generally study the history of their nation, what happened, which war, who was the main player, and so on and so forth. There's very little of the world in that. So it also makes it difficult for people to feel more than a nationalistic you know, to give people a more than a nationalistic feeling. So today people would say, hey, I'm a proud German, I'm a proud Indian, I'm a proud American. But very few people would come forth and say, I'm a proud world citizen. Because that feeling has not been bred right from the beginning. And uh, centuries across, there has been always insecurity. Yes, there was survival of the fittest then, but then in this day and age, we need to work at another level. So I'm with you totally 100% on the job that you are trying to do, the World Parliament. I don't know how you're going to go about doing that. The intricacies are phenomenal. But as you rightly said, it may seem like that. It can be fairly simplistic. I mean, there are countries like, I mean, U.S. is a huge country with different states. One is doing that, decentralized levels. Uh, India is another. It's like a continent. They're, each state is like um, another country, and it is still doing that somehow. And they are different. Africa, I mean, they are different. It's not sort of coming together. But yes, it is possible. One world is possible. So, um, and I'm with that completely. Thank you for joining me and shedding some light on what you're doing and I wish you all the best on this journey of creating global consciousness and having a world parliament unity. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me today. It was a pleasure. Dear listeners, what an expansive feeling. Moving forward from a self-centered sphere to a nationalistic feeling and onwards to global consciousness. The scriptures in Greece, perhaps in some other parts of the earth and in India, saw the world as one. Vasudeva Kutumbakam, the world is one family. I hope to see that in my lifetime. Hope is an enormous blessing. It enables us to see beyond the conflicts which rage in our world today. It enables us to see a tomorrow which is not yet visible to our physical eyes. It enables nations to free themselves from shackles forced on them. I hope. Do you? Thank you for listening to the series between the East and the West. Do subscribe to the channels mentioned on the side. In case, of course, you liked what you had, 
I am Meenu Gupta, the host of the series, and I'll be looking forward to your comments. We love feedback. Thank you once again. Namaste and bye-bye.